You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. There's a writer who I came to through the movies, which is which is not that uncommon. There are certainly like novelists I first heard of because of a movie adaptation, but I can't think of somebody who has as consistently been involved in books that I have enjoyed, both as books and then as their adapted versions. And that man's name is Tom Parada. He wrote the book Election, which became, of course, the wonderful movie Election uh, with Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. He wrote the book Little Children, which became the movie Little Children, which is divisive, but I I like it. Uh, And then he wrote the book The Leftovers, which became the HBO show The Leftovers, which is basically my religion now. His new book is called Mrs. Fletcher, and I am fascinated by the way it just dives headfirst into a bunch of stuff that has tripped up novelists in the past, including issues of privilege, issues of how Uh, We use the internet and texting and things like that in our day-to-day lives, issues of sex and gender and et cetera, but also just like going to college, which is a thing a lot of novelists have really fucked up in the past. So I was excited to have Tom come and talk with me about his book, but also about his writing process, about the adaptations of his work. And since we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of election, I wanted to ask him about how he feels about Tracy Flick all these years later. I'm so excited to have him and uh, we'll get to that right now. Tom, thank you for stopping by. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, this book is kind of a, in a long tradition of, I guess I'd say, it's not quite a college novel, but it has aspects of that college setting. And the college novel has felled many other novelists over the years, like trying to get into that mindset. What what intrigued you about that setting, about that world of, of post-high school, of going out into the world and mature, maturing? Well, you know, my kids are now 23 and 20, so in the past... Uh, you know, a few years I've been spending a lot of time taking them back to school. And, um, you know, what I was surprised by was just how uh, how triggered I was by being in college <laughs> and, and just being flooded with memories in the sense that, uh, oh, this is this place where, um, you know, really interesting things can happen. And, and it, you know, in my own mind, you know, college was this great transformative adventure. And so, you know, I, I was really looking at it from the perspective of the parent, right. and and the book, um, you know, sends Mrs. Fletcher, the this divorced uh, mom, back to school herself, and and so both she and her son are having this sort of uh, fall semester where they're trying to build new identities for themselves. Right, right. You know, I thought about I thought about that as I was reading uh, the opening chapters, which sort of view the son, Brendan, moving into college through first his mother's perspective and then his perspective. Um, And I I was thinking of my own parents when I went to college and like how they treated it so differently from me. And I I just wanted to get rid of them. Um, Like what what did you said you saw, like were triggered sort of in a way by this, like moving, uh, moving your kids in. Like what, what was different about the experience seeing it from that point of view that you maybe didn't expect? Well, this is something that keeps coming to me as I get older, which is there's this myth that we move into adulthood and we leave our former selves behind. And, right. and instead, 
you know, my, my feeling is these former selves just continue to live on inside of us. And I was just surprised at how, uh, how present the college self was for, for me, you know, where mm-hmm. I just felt like, hey, why, why do I have to leave? Why can't I stay here and, uh, you know, have some, have some fun? Yeah. So one, a thing that I think you do that's really interesting in this book is, and I'm going to get like to some really nerdy writer shit here. So <laughs> I hope you'll excuse me. You, you, uh, va- you sort of uh, alternate between uh, Eve Fletcher's uh, chapters are written in a close third person where we're in her head, but we're writing it through an outside observer, essentially. And, and Brendan Fletcher's chapters are written, you know, through first person, through his eyes directly. I'm wondering what was behind that choice, but also, like, what do you see as the virtues of, you know, third person versus first person? Well, you know, I'm, I'm normally a real advocate of the close third person, it seems, uh, to give that really interesting dual perspective. You get a little bit of distance on the character, but you have access to their internal monologue. And, you know, with Eve's first chapter, it's, I think it'd be very familiar to my readers, the sort of voice that that chapter is told in. And then there's this jarring transition to Brendan. Right. And he's in first person. He's very unselfconscious. He just sort of blurts out whatever he's thinking. And he talks in a kind of, uh, you know, suburban teenage bro slang. Right. And... You know, for me, it was, I, I felt like, oh, I know what this kid sounds like. I, it was just a real instinctual decision to to put him in, in first person. Later when I was done, I looked at it and I thought, why did I do that? Why did it feel right? And And I decided that there's this very jarring transition every time you move from Eve to Brandon. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it feels like different books and it feels like different realities. And, and what it does is really sets up this distance between the two of them. You know, Eve is always thinking about Brendan. You know, he's very much on her mind. And Brendan is just very much in his own head and not thinking about his mother and not really thinking about anybody else. He's, he's so intensely self-centered. And it, um, I just, I feel like this distance between the two characters who are members of the same family um, just just sets up the right parameters for the book. Yeah. One thing that struck me as I read the book, and you can you can tell me if this is wrong if you like, but it felt to me like you were using that almost as a way to comment uh, on the characters' varying levels of, of privilege to some degree. You do talk about privilege some in the book. This is very much a book that's set in our era when we're starting to examine some of these underpinnings of society. But it's like Eve is finally old enough and mature enough to like understand the level of, to start to understand the level of privilege she's had. And Brendan is in a place where he probably should, but completely misses the point. And because we're in his head, we see what's distracting him from finding the point. Did did you find that to be true as you were writing? Yeah, it was really interesting to think about the level of self-consciousness. Sure that Brendan was going to have. And and one of the things I did notice while I was writing him is that he is aware in his own mind of of the kind of objections people are making. Like, if he's uh, dismissive of this uh, Indian guy named Sanjay, who he thinks of as a nerd, he will say, like, hey, it's not because I'm prejudiced against Indian people or anything like that. Or, you know, hey, maybe I need to check my privilege. You know, he, he there's a kind of a... He's both aggressive and defensive at the same time. Right. Uh, so he's 
He's sort of acknowledging that people are asking him to check his privilege, but he's not actually checking his privilege. So it's a kind of an intermediate step there. <laughs> yeah. How do you? How did you like when you were getting into his head? Like, how did you check that this was like right? You know, how did you check that you were getting the the references right? Because it would be so easy to come off as like a lame dad, if you'll excuse the expression. <laughs> yeah, which you know. Uh, so I, I had both my kids uh, read the book, and and they flagged certain mistakes. I mean, one of the other things I did was I was much more sparing with the references, I think, than mm-hmm. I would be if I were if you went back to my own novel, Joe College, where. Um, I was writing about my own college experience and remembering it. I think just certain references and, and cultural touchstones came so easily to me. You know, I knew exactly what my character was listening to and how he understood sort of the hierarchy of pop music, et cetera. Whereas, uh, you know, in writing Brendan, I would have to say to my kids, like, oh, what's he listening to? Right. And that's just a different level of of writing. And so I think one of the ways I, I think... So much of writing is knowing what to leave out. And and so to leave out uh, a weak reference is much smarter than to try, try and force one in there. You've earned this real reputation as, as a satirist. Um, but I think that we often think of satirists as like very pitch black, like cutting, uh, you know, sparing no prisoners writers. And certainly you've had books like that. Um, but this book is is satirical, but also very warm and very loving toward its characters. And I'm wondering, maybe this is one of those like things that you just do intuitively. But how do you balance those two sides of like, I love these characters, but also you know there are things about them that need to be poked and prodded at and sort of uh, questioned and, and even even mocked in places. Yeah, well, uh, I have a such a complex bunch of answers to that question mm. because sometimes I bristle at the idea that I'm, I'm writing satire because the classic definition of satire puts the writer in a kind of uh, elevated, sure. know-it-all position. The, the writer knows better, and he's there to sort of display these characters and all their foolishness so that the reader, who also shares this superior perspective, can laugh at them. And, and you know, I, I feel like I'm down there in the muck with these characters. They're often grappling with... Uh, things that I'm grappling with. But but as you as you point out, there are some elements of satire um, in the book. And I think the way that I manage this is to usually front load them. It's like the characters seem most ridiculous when you first meet them. Mm-hmm. They seem sometimes to conform to types and you feel like, oh, I know who this person is. You know, he's a frat boy. She's a social justice warrior. Uh, this person is a, a suicide girl. This guy's a vet with P- PTSD. Um, you know, and so I think we respond to the characters as types and then watch them, you know, grow beyond uh, the box we put them in. And, and they become more complex and interesting as, as the book goes on. And I think the satire, you know, kind of falls away. So right. I feel like I get to have it both ways if I'm doing it right. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of, I, I kind of want to pursue that a little further because... Uh, one of the things that we're really talking about a lot, especially in pop culture, is degrees of, like, white privilege, degrees of, like, upper-class white people, like, to what degree they need to be aware of, you know, the history of what our ancestors have done. And I think this book is really smart about, like you said, front-loading that, but then also talking about how all these people are individual human beings who have their own pain or who have their own uh 
terrible things they do that have like nothing to do with their backgrounds or, you know, have their own things they have to overcome, their own responsibilities they have to take. And I, as you were writing it, you know, what, sort of what are your thinking on those themes as we're, we're discussing them more and more in, in society? Well, uh, you know, I guess what I'm always trying to do is have a, at least a couple of perspectives on, on anyone. So just, just for instance, um, you know, Eve works as the director of a senior center. Sure. And she has an employee named Amanda who is younger and probably, you know, much more liberal than Eve. And, and Amanda feels like she's got to call out these seniors when she hears them using racist language. You know, she's clearly somebody of her generation. She doesn't want to tolerate this racist language. Right. Um, now, Eve is older, and I think she just treats stuff like that as, like, that's who these people are, um, you know, but they have other problems. Their problems are they're old and they're sick, and some of them are, you know, losing loved ones. Some of them are losing their minds. Um, and so sometimes the old people look like um, racists and Fox News watchers. Other times they look like um, sad, broken-down people who deserve compassion. Um, and I just, I just feel like, you know, in different contexts, these characters look different. And, right. and, you know, one of the ways that Eve gets her transgender professor, Margot, to come and speak to the senior center is that, according to Margot, she uses PC jujitsu. She says, you know, old people are marginalized. They're silenced. Nobody listens to them. They are the definition of a marginalized group in this society. And, you know, sometimes we throw in ageism when right. we give the list of isms. But for the most part, I don't think old white people, for example, are considered super sympathetic right, right. now in the culture. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's interesting you mentioned that. I, I, I'm thinking about how the book, like, uses generational uh, attitudes toward these sorts of things. Because you have, like, the characters in Brendan's sphere who, when they hear an idea like gender as a social construct, they're like, well, of course, you know, that that's how it is. And then Eve will hear that in her class that she takes and be like, hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that could be true. And then these, uh, some of these older people she works with, a lot of them find that idea kind of frightening. And I'm wondering, as you yourself get older, are there or, or do you feel your attitudes calcifying in that way? Because I certainly do. Like, I certainly, as I get older, feel like there are things where I'm like, well, that's just a bridge too far, buddy. <laughs> of, of course I do, you know. Yeah. And and uh, I feel it especially when we get into, um, you know, issues of, like, sexual assault on campus and right. the hookup culture. And, you know, I did a lot of reading on, on that subject. And, I, I, you know, I totally understand, like— uh, We've got to do much better, and and you know a lot of women uh, are are treated horribly in, in college. On the other hand, you know I, I was reading you know the book Missoula by John Krakauer, and he just has lists of you know um, uh, incidents that that led to disciplinary proceedings in the college, and you know they almost always began with two people being incredibly drunk, mm. and and you know the a, adult parent in me is just like, you know, a really good way to, you know, did not find yourself in, in a terrible situation would be not to get so drunk that you're not responsible for what you do. And, and right. that goes for, obviously, for men and women both. But it does seem like, you know, some part of me wants to say, like, you know, there's something broken about um, uh, 
this hookup culture as well as something broken about male privilege. Right, right. I think that's an interest that's an interesting sort of idea and it's one I I wrestle with sometimes as well which is this idea that being young is supposedly about making a lot of stupid mistakes in some ways and doing dumb things so that you know not to do them. Um, but also, we un- now we sort of understand all of the ways that making those stupid mistakes can like really scar people or really hurt people or, or much, much worse than that even. Um, and as you said, you, you did a lot of research in this. You did a lot of reading in this. Like, what was something that, that really struck you as you were researching it that made you think, okay, either I need to put this in the book or maybe it, it changed your mind on something. I don't know, something like that. While you were talking, I was just... Uh... You're thinking about, I'm not going to answer your question directly because I was just, <laughs> just struck by, um, you know, this other thing because I, I do wonder sometimes. Um, it's a generational thing where I think young people do often, you know, describe things in what strikes people of my generation as melodramatic. Right. Um, and, and there's some sense now that people are going to be scarred by all sorts of things, including, you know, reading uh, disturbing stories that remind them that that the world is a disturbing place, and there's some maybe feeling that oh, you know, people need to toughen up. And I just read this amazing piece by uh, Stephen Greenblatt right. uh, in in the New Yorker about um, reading The Merchant of Venice as as a Jewish student at Harvard years ago, and he was just talking about how Shakespeare's anti-Semitism somehow gave way to his own. Uh, incorrigible humanism and and that that you know Greenblatt himself felt like there was just something really um, character building and revelatory about being a Jewish person reading an anti-Semitic text by a writer right. that he loved you know and and there was just this this sense I think that part of a college education was exposing yourself to things that um, maybe shook you and 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 wounded you and and figuring out like how do i take what i need from this and not be simply wounded by it right and right. and uh this is just what we were talking about just now just you know i was just thinking about that kind of resilience and that that sense of um if you just set up a, a cultural narrative where you know people have a bad experience and they're scarred forever then that's the narrative people will live out. But if you set up another narrative where people have a little more control over what they absorb and what they resist and and how they create themselves, um, that may be a more productive narrative, especially for college students. Something that you you, you when you were just talking that pinged for me about about the book and about a lot of your books is as this book deepens, I guess, as you get deeper into it, more and more people's perspectives come to the fore. Like, we start just seeing Eve and Brendan, and then we start to see Margot, Eve's uh, transgender teacher. We start to see uh, Amber, who's a friend of Brendan's, who's very involved in social justice causes. We start to see some of these other characters' perspectives. Um, and 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 you have just, there's just an immense uh, empathy and sympathy for all of them, even when they're in conflict. Um, and I'm, I'm, which of these characters, I guess, did you struggle the most to get into the head of? And like, how do you approach that question of building sympathy or building empathy for a character who maybe is, has very different views from yourself? Um, you know, it, it was really interesting. Uh, nobody in this book posed the kind of difficult challenge that, say, 
Ronnie McGorvey did in Little Children. Ronnie is the uh, sex offender who is a kind of nightmare presence in in the town where Little Children takes place. And all through the book, I said, I'm not going to go into the head of this um, pedophile. You know, that's just a bridge too far for me as a writer. I don't need to do that. And I chose instead to portray Ronnie through the eyes of his mother, who loves him and wants him to be a decent person, uh, and the eyes of the town that kind of vilifies him in this, just turns him into a kind of a monster rather than a person. And it, again, in, in doing that and seeing him through these dual perspectives, I felt like I was beginning to get to know him. And I got to a point in the book where I actually had to tell some part of the story through Ronnie's eyes. And mm-hmm. by that point, I felt like I actually had some kind of understanding of who he was, and I didn't find it... Um, distasteful to to go into his head and and um i feel like the that method has worked for me over a bunch of books which is um first i'll see a character like amanda who is um eve's employee and later um somebody eve has a sort of ambiguous romantic relationship with um i'll see her through eve's eyes and then i'll start to think well who is she and i'll just i'll just spend a little time with her and and you know, I guess the the most extreme, or or the case I worried about most was Margot, the transgender professor, because I know that that's a very, um, you know, specific experience and one that, um, you know, I can't say that I have any natural insight into. So I did a lot of reading and and a lot of thinking and and uh, just try my best to find some way into into a character and I felt like Margot became known to me when she started complaining about her mother. Right. And I felt like somehow, oh, there's there's this character. And she was being very vulnerable with Eve, you know, she she needed a friend. And somehow, you know, as a writer, it just some little gesture or statement will make me feel close to a character and make me feel like I can inhabit them. And that's a uh, that's always a risky uh thing to take on, especially in the era that we live in, where I think there are people who would set up um, fairly rigid rules for, you know, who can write from which perspectives. Um, but, you know, it's something I've, I've grown more confident in as, as a writer. I just feel like there's a moment when I, I can kind of get, get in there. Right, right. Yeah, I, that's the thing I think about a lot, because I think one of the one of the great things about art is that it forces us to build empathy with people who aren't like us. And that sometimes happens on the level of the artist, like trying to adopt a perspective that's not their own. And yet at the same time, because of the way the world is set up, like the people who have voices are almost often, not as much anymore, but certainly in the past have been of a certain, you know, ruling group or ruling class. And like, there is that tension there, and I, you mentioned it a little bit about, you know, who gets to tell which stories, and I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on that question of, like, how far you or me, you know, as as people who are part of that 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 privileged class, like, how far we can go in those terms and, like, uh, how far research can take us before, like, it would be almost better for someone from one of those other groups to take over the process and tell their own story? Yeah, well, I, I don't think those two things are are mutually exclusive. Sure. Um, and, you know, one of the ways I think about this is, like, for instance, I, I read uh, Jenny Boylan, Jennifer Finney Boylan's uh, 
books um, it, while I was working on this. And 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 what, one of the things I, re- I really was thinking about in Mrs. Fletcher was that if we're, as a society, we're going to rethink gender and begin to find a new way to talk about it and, and think about it, um, there's got to be a kind of broad social consensus. It's, it's not, um, it's, it's a, it's a project that belongs to the entire community, meaning right. it belongs to cisgender people and transgender people. Right. Um, and, and that for the most part, Mrs. Fletcher really is about, um, a bunch of cisgender people being confronted with questions of identity and new ways of thinking about I- identity. So, you know, Eve is in this class and she, this is her first time becoming friends with a transgender person. Right. Um, Julian is a smart, young college kid, and he totally gets it. You know, he's been bullied. Uh, he is a, sort of a long-haired guy who has problems with jocks like Brendan and and this discourse about the formation of gender makes a lot of sense to him. Right. You know, Dumel is a vet uh, who is a car mechanic and— he's finding himself attracted to this transgender woman. You know, and I just feel like these are all aspects of um, this cultural moment that we're in. And and uh, I just felt like I wanted to tell the story from a bunch of perspectives. And if I stick only to the perspectives that are closest to my identity, that it's just going to be a smaller story. And yeah. I don't think it's going to make the same the same point. And just, just let me say, you know... Uh, you know, I understand all about this, the debate about appropriation and, and uh, but there is a, for a white writer in particular, a real um, tension between stories of inclusion, which I would say I'm trying to write right. and stories of, of appropriation. So I want to have, I want my stories to let in as many kinds of characters as possible. Um, I, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm, I don't want to be taking something that doesn't belong to me, but I do want to be including. And so, you know, I, I try to err on the side of inclusion. And then I just have to leave it up to the reader who's going to say, hey, that's not for you to say, or you got that wrong, or w- whatever those criticisms are. <clears throat> you know, I, I will happily listen to them. Right, right. To, to sort of spin off on it in a different direction, uh, but kind of still on this book, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of detail in this book about like the use of the internet, the use of texting, the use of smartphones, things like that. Um, and I'm interested in, I remember, I think it was the early 2000s, I read this piece that was about how is the novel going to grapple with the era of the internet? Because on the one hand, so much of it is text still, like, and that fits well into the novel. But on the other hand, there's this speed to living online that's hard to do in the more deliberative space of the novel. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts sort of on that tension between the speed that we live at now uh, and, and finding a way to depict that on, on the page. Yeah. I mean, this, this book is, is all about that. And, and I think part of this question is, is, is loneliness. I would say the book's about identity, but it's a lot about loneliness. And one of the things that the characters do when they're lonely is that they turn to this this online world and sometimes the online world can alleviate that loneliness uh you know amanda had a bad day and she goes on tinder and she just gets a guy to come to her house whenever she needs him and there's this sense that the world it's you know it's like this the 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 genius of uber you know uh 
but it, it's with people. You know, right. you need somebody, and there's somebody who needs you, and you know, now you can you can get together. Now, I don't know that that actually alleviates her loneliness in any in any uh, permanent sense, but it, it it is a way that that she deals with it. Um, you know, Eve starts looking at a lot of pornography um, in in the course of the novel, and whenever she's lonely, she she goes to that source and. What she finds there is a, a kind of a utopia. What she sees as a kind of chaotic but somewhat utopian vision of of life, where um, everybody wants the same thing and um, there's nothing stopping them from getting it. Whereas in her own life, it seems like there's nothing but obstacles to to getting what you want. And the book really is a for Eve about um, the way that she can imagine herself into a life that looks a little bit more like this porn utopia. <laughs> porn. You should, you should, uh, you know, if you ever, if you ever do like a, like a re- revised edition of this, retitle it porn utopia. <laughs> yeah. I should just start a website, right? <laughs> uh, I actually, Nobody can take that. That's fine. <laughs> I actually want to ask you about that because a lot of the reviews of this have, have sort of talked about how it deals with issues of pornography addiction. And to me, the character's relationship to pornography seems, I, maybe this is marking me, maybe this is saying something horrifying about me, but it seems like healthy, you know? It doesn't seem like it's a thing that overwhelms their lives. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on like, on like that sort of, I'm not even, it's not a criticism, it's just like a description of the book from a lot of reviewers. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, I, you know, as a writer, you, you can see how people jump on certain things. It's, it's Eve who, who, you know, she's troubled by the fact that she keeps going to this one uh, site that is for amateur MILF porn. And, you know, she's lonely. And, and before bed now, she every night she goes to this site and she is ashamed of herself. And she has a moment where she says, you know, I'm not addicted. It's just a habit. Yeah. And that's really the only time the word comes up. It's not addiction in any clinical sense where it prevents her from doing her job or prevents her from having relationships with other people. So it is funny to see that 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 word um, has such power and it, it kind of filtered its way into um, a lot of the discussion about the book. I mean, I, I would say um, that I, I, I've gotten beyond the point of, of, you know, when I was in college, there was really just kind of a very simple judgment on the part of most people I respected, which is just porn is really bad. It's right. this um, a, a misogynistic, exploitive, dirty business, um, and it objectifies women. And um, just stay away from it. And and I you know I really took that to heart. And I think things started to change. Um, actually, I think it was the, the sort of pro-sex you know feminists who were saying, "Wait a second, you know we've got to protect this." Um, place of, of transgressive fantasy, that that's a part of, you know, queer sexuality and I'm, we're not going to let the, you know, Puritans and the prudes uh, take it away from us. And that was a, a really compelling uh, counter perspective. And then, you know, suddenly uh, porn became available on the internet and it turned out there was just this huge pent up demand. You know, if people have the ability to look at uh, other people having sex, apparently they will do it <laughs> all the time, <laughs> you know, and, and it became... A phenomenon so big that it was just impossible to say this is bad, this is good, right? Because it's so many things to so many different people, and um, as you suggest, I mean, I think I think for Eve, 
it's hard to say that um, her exposure to this porn is bad um, in some simple way. It's revelatory. Um, it's inspiring. It's troubling. Uh, but it do, it shakes up her life in a way that I think you'd have to argue she's happier at the end of the book than she is at the beginning. And and you know, central to that movement is her exposure to this porn and her decision to try on an identity that it offers her. Right, right. How do you approach writing about sex? There are so many novelists who have gotten in great trouble by writing about sex. So I'm wondering, like, when you approach a sex scene, where, like, where do you start? How do you think about it? How do you think about describing it in a way that doesn't feel prurient but also feels, like, true to the experience? Yeah, you know, this is, this is uh, an interesting question for me because some people have rightfully pointed out that this is a book that talks about sex um, but doesn't show a lot of it. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I recently was just looking through John Updike's couples, you know, and was just struck by his um, desire to really describe, you know, bodies in in very lyrical and, and minute detail. And, and I, I've decided not to do that. I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily the world's greatest descriptive writer. I'm not a, you know, Nabokovian stylist by any means. But um, I also just feel like that can be really alienating to to readers sometimes. Um, and, and I feel like I end up suggesting sex more than um, really uh, getting into the, the nitty gritty of, of who does what and how and how long and how hard. Like, um, those aren't the things that... Um, that I feel like I, I need to do. And, and I certainly like this, there's a, well, I don't want to spoil too much in the book, but there, there's a big sex scene. And, and I ended up, you know, at, at, in earlier versions, it was described in much greater detail. And, and now it's described only retroactively and, and only in a kind of very uh, impressionistic set of uh, images, which, which for the most part actually seems kind of right to me, you know, um, if I think back, I, I, I don't remember my sexual experiences in any great, uh, great detail, you know, right. they just often just, just have little flashes of what that was like. So, but I, I don't know, I, I think there, there's a sense I have that there are a, a hundred ways to go wrong in describing sex. And so, uh, I, I, and I don't want there to be like one, one detail that just kind of ruins the scene or something. So I, I try to do it in very impressionistic ways, um, but I want I want it to feel large. There's a it's a lot about anticipation and a lot about the moment leading up to the actual sex. I think. Yeah. And Eve says that when she watches porn, like that's what she's watching for, not the sex, but the moment of seduction when right. one character sort of crosses the line from unwilling to willing. That that is really the moment that where all the interest lies. I was as I was reading this, I was sort of thinking about the inevitable. Uh, what I feel is the inevitable adaptation of it, because um, you've had. Uh, a couple of books adapted into movies, and of course, The Leftovers became a TV show. Um, but what I realized as I was reading it was a lot, like you just said, a lot of the big moments happen off page to some degree. Like you will uh, end a section of the book, the book is in five sections, and a section will end at like a moment of maximum 
uh, dramatic impact, and then it'll skip forward, you know, a few weeks, a few months, whatever. What is interesting, and you've done that in other books as well, so I'm wondering what is interesting about that to you, about about getting to the point of maximum uh, conflict and then moving ahead to where it's all aftermath? Yeah, you know, that. I, I hope it's not a, a an allergy to to big drama, <laughs> you know, or an inability to to describe big drama. Uh, you know, I do feel like it's sometimes, it, unless there's going to be something surprising about what happens after you get everything lined up, uh, then I feel like showing it can be anticlimactic. Right. Especially sex. It's sort of like the difficulty is just getting the people into the place where it's going to happen, I think, you know, mentally and, and physically. Um, also, I, I like the idea that if you do cut out, it does force the reader to, I think, fill in those blanks. And then there's a sort of interest for the reader when the scene gets uh, recapitulated to see if, if what they thought happened happened. You know, so it, it I feel like it does give the reader a little more of a chance to to imagine the scene and it does create some suspense about, you know, was that what I thought it was going to be? Um, I think it, it does, it, it does help the pacing. I think the book reads very quickly sometimes uh, for that reason. It, it just kind of, it just keeps flowing forward. And then sometimes the, the reader is sort of having to catch up to it in a way. I think, I think the effect in this and in many of your other books is, uh, like, think about, for instance, The Leftovers is about a world where 2% of the population has disappeared, and you pick up in, in a world where that's in the past. And, like, I think that your books are really good at showing how we incorporate these massive events that happen to all of us and turn them into part of our narrative and just, like, turn them into a part of our story through power of memory or power of whatever— uh, what's interesting to you about the ways that we attempt to smooth out these big moments into just like, oh, this is just another part of the story of my life, be that a major sex scene as in this book or like 2% of the world disappearing? Yeah, well, so The Leftovers is actually, that that's an easier thing for me to um, talk about just because it's so huge. Um, I, you know, I just thought if I were to have told the immediate aftermath of the sudden departure where where two percent of the world's population disappears, I think I would have just been telling a very conventional apocalyptic story, which is there's chaos, right? And people are freaking out, trying to find their loved ones, and it's a little bit like like watching this uh, the flood that we're watching in in Houston right now. In some sense, every disaster story is the the same disaster story it, it it's still a huge and profound and, and horrible thing for the people going through it um but if you watch it on the news you could be watching you know katrina all over again um yeah. but uh you know i think the decision to jump ahead three years uh from the sudden departure in the leftovers it elides all of this stuff that um would make it seem like any other story and makes it a very specific story, which is, right, exactly, how do we absorb this blow? How do we turn it into a story? What, how do we make sense of it? And, and, and that's what The Leftovers becomes. Um, and I think it's, it's very different from other apocalyptic stories because it is about the way in which the human meaning-making machine, you know, goes into overdrive when it can't explain something. And so, you know, there are religious explanations, there are scientific explanations, there are, you know, uh, 
obsessive, personal uh, delusions, you know, whatever it may be. And there are people who are just in denial in some huge sense. And, and the conflict in the book is really a conflict of narratives rather than a, you know, a conflict of interests or, or um, politics. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I really wonder, like, uh, and this is maybe a more of a general question, when you start thinking about working on a novel, when you start thinking about what you're going to do, do you sit down and do like an outline or do you, does it come to you as you write it? What, what, what's your process essentially? Um, so n- no outline for me. And, and I, and I don't even start with characters. You know, I'm very interested when I hear um, writers will say, well, I just heard this voice or I saw that character. And, and that's where I, I started for me. It's, it's always with a, a situation, um, so for the leftovers, I would say, okay, the rapture happens, but it's not really the rapture. Right. And so three years later, you know, are, are we living in the tribulation or are we just living in this um, completely precarious world where we don't know if it's going to happen again or or if it was a one-time thing? You, you know, it, it's just, it's very situational for me. Or I, I'll say um, in the wishbones, you know, uh, these guys play in a wedding band, mm-hmm. and one of them gets engaged. Yeah, but he really doesn't want to get married. You know, and then I'll once I I'll start always with that, and then it's a matter of okay, so who is this guy? And that's the mysterious part. You know, the characters only emerge from the writing. Yeah, uh, and I guess in some ways, uh, some of these characters. Like, I would say that, that there is a broad similarity between Eve Fletcher and Ruth Ramsey from The Abstinence Teachers, say. They're both divorced women, both sort of, um, you know, liberal and, you know, feminist working women. Uh, but they're mainly concerned with, you know, their private lives and their their roles as mothers and, and their jobs, you know. And, and sometimes my characters are men who don't want to grow up that mm-hmm. you know that I, there are types that i i return to yeah. but but i only get to know them through the through the writing and i only usually start with um just a, a broad situation you had to have been writing this book uh around the same time as you were working on the tv version of the leftovers which you wrote many scripts for and were involved in the writers room and all of that sort of thing and so how did you balance that out what what are what are your time management tips for yeah. for the rest of us well that, you know you know when when i brought the leftovers to hbo they said to me do you want to be the showrunner and i i said absolutely not <laughs> i don't know the first thing about running a show and i also you know i'm a novelist and i don't want to become a full-time tv writer right and so they said, that's fine. And, and you know, in the greatest stroke of luck there was, we got Damon Lindelof to come work on the show. And he really put his mark on that material and transformed it. And, and you know, it was just a r- huge privilege for me to work with Damon and, and to learn from him and to watch, you know, my book, which, which I love, but which is um, just doesn't have the emotional scope and the narrative wildness that the show has that, you know, that, you know, a lot of that just comes from Damon's risk taking and um, and his you know very fertile imagination. Um, but anyway, 
I really did try to stick to this idea that I am both a writer on the show, The Leftovers, and a novelist. And the way that I mostly did it was I would I stayed in Boston, but I would go out to L.A. for two weeks at a time. You know, I'd go home, go to L.A. for two weeks, and I'd go home to Boston for two weeks mm-hmm. throughout the writer's room, which could be like eight months out of a year. And then I'd have a, a hiatus, um, which could be four months, though. Between season two and three, it was only maybe maybe two months. We we came back much sooner than I expected, which was a problem for me because I had a deadline for Mrs. Fletcher, and I thought I was going to have several months to write exclusively on that. And what it meant was for season three, I was really writing. The, you know, I'd be in the writer's room for five days a week, and then I'd just hole up on the weekend and write the book for two weeks. And, you know, they're very different stories. And it was uh, it was a kind of exhausting uh, thing for me. And they, they both ended around the same time, about uh, in October of uh, 2016. The show was done and the book was done. And I'm still reco- still recovering, really. <laughs> when you are when you have an adaptation, like this is the thing I think about. I saw the movie Election before I read the book Election. So when I read the book Election, I saw you know Reese Witherspoon in my head and all that. When you uh, have a book of yours picked up to be adapted, like does it still exist as a separate thing from like the movie or TV version of it in your head, or or do they start to cross pollinate each other? I mean, maybe with the leftovers that was inevitable because you worked on both book and and TV show, but like with uh, with election, you didn't. I, as far as I know, you didn't have anything to do with the movie other than like seeing it. Exactly. No, and and uh, and I will say that this is this is the danger, and I think it's why so many writers have such mixed feelings about having their work adapted right because it it does you know there's just something about seeing a film that you know it imprints itself on your memory so if i pick up election now and i start reading i'm seeing matthew broderick and i'm seeing reese witherspoon yeah it just that's just the way it works and if that were a bad movie that would be a profoundly dispiriting experience for me but because it was a great movie, um, I get a I get a big kick out of it. And I now I remember I was reading from Election, which which I hardly ever do, but I, I for some reason I decided to read from it, and I felt myself giving Reese Witherspoon's line readings. Hmm. You know, they were just in my head, like that's how this line is said. Uh, and I'm I'm always startled when I get to. You know, Tracy's a very different character in the book. She is much more sexual and and sexually confident, and she uh, wears you know sexy clothes, uh, unlike you know Tracy in in the movie who wears these you know schoolgirl skirts and and turtlenecks. Right. Um, and I feel like hey, we're <laughs> you know Tracy doesn't look like Tracy. Um, so I I do feel like the uh, the adaptations kind of the the movie or the show does sort of occupy the space of of the book and it's harder to see the book as an independent uh, entity after it's been adapted. We're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of that book, which will be next year. And the 20-year anniversary of the film is in in 2019. Um, And, you know, no matter how the rest of your career plays out, somewhere in your obituary, that'll be in like the first couple graphs that you wrote, election. And that book has become this kind of touchstone for a lot of ideas we have about 
women in power and all of these other things that kind of swirl around what's ultimately a very sly, very funny novel and a very sly, very funny film. And I'm wondering, what, like, what's your relationship to that book now that you're you're removed from it like that? And like, but that at the same time, it's become this like, this thing where somebody says Tracy Flick and everybody goes, oh, okay, I get what you're talking about. Well, if the first thing I have to say is that it is an unending source of, of pleasant surprise for me mm. because that was a book that um, when I wrote it did not make a splash whatsoever. It, it, I couldn't get it published. My agent just said, um, people don't know whether it's YA or adult. They don't know what to do with it. It fell between some cracks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought of it as a failure for several years. Uh, and then through a you know fluky chain of circumstances, I ended up sending it to uh, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa, who are the producers, and they got it to MTV Films, which was just starting up, and MTV, and Albert and Ron got it to Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor. You know, everything just happened like, uh, that part of it just happened like a fairy tale, and then suddenly there was this amazing movie out of this book that I considered a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so the idea that now it's something that people, you know, st- that people still talk about and remember, it's just, it's kind of an am- amazing personal story for me. What I will say, how I think about it now is that I was obsessed with the 1992 election. I had the feeling that something really interesting was happening and it was over. I felt bereft and I, I couldn't really move on. And I wrote the book in a way to keep that election alive in my mind. And and that idea of, you know, Bill Clinton and the character issue, this sense that who we are in our private lives tells us something important about who we are in our public lives struck me as, as completely wrong and simple-minded. You know, as a novelist, I just thought, you know, the disjunction between who we are internally and who we want the world to think we are um, that is the crucial question of the novel. Right. And the idea that that the American public was crying out for um, the banishment of the private self just struck me as completely wrong. And and um, but also I, I you know, I was writing about my own generation of women. You know, I I think that the I went to um, a working class high school and then I went to Yale and I just met all these women who had been empowered in a way that a lot of the girls I grew up with hadn't been. And they felt like they could, that the world was wide open for them and and they were powerful uh, figures. And I was both fascinated by them and a little intimidated. Right. And and then I went and I taught at Yale and Harvard for 10 years after that. I was just teaching like freshman comp, but meeting, you know, all these powerful young women. And I did have this feeling of like, this is something new. I didn't know that that these sort of super women, you know, existed, and they were scary uh, to a lot of men. I think, and at least I think I, you know, put my finger on that sort of ambivalence right. that that came from encountering these women. You know, that that I, I love that Tracy is is subject to revision right now. That that feminists have sort of rediscovered her and are starting to defend her because. For years and years, there was just a sense that Tracy is a monster, right. you know, and and I I never felt I never felt quite like that, you know. I felt like Tracy, you know, she makes some mistakes, but she also there's something really uh, human and and um, 
admirable about her. Right, right. We're headed into the end of the show, but, but before we get to our, our final questions, I want to ask you, every one of your books kind of has this grappling with how much to embrace the status quo. Like every one of your books comes to an ending where the status quo is either re-embraced wholesale or is re-embraced with great reluctance. And I'm wondering, like, what's your relationship with that idea that that things may change a little bit, but will inevitably return to a kind of equilibrium? Because um, that comes up a lot in your books. That, that's a really smart uh, observation. Um, you know, part of it is writing in a comic mode, which I always feel that I'm doing. And in at least in classic terms, you know, comedy is always about the restoration mm-hmm. of order. You know, order is reimposed, but in a way that makes sense for uh, for the characters. And there's a marriage, and and society will will go on. Um, and I do think that uh, I have an essentially comic vision. I, I you know maybe it reflects my own sense that ordinary life offers enough sustenance for for most people, you know, for some people to have a happy life. I know a lot of people don't feel that way. Um, you know, there is something maybe conservative in in that vision. I'm not politically conservative, but I think um, the idea that um, there's a workable status quo definitely is uh, something that, even even in the leftovers, right, where the world has been profoundly challenged in, like, in a cosmic way, and there's this huge sense of loss, there are characters who are just saying, Hey, can we just go back to that the way it was? Because the way it was was pretty good. Yeah. And you know, maybe this is the privilege of growing up. Even though it was a turbulent time in the '60s and '70s when I was a kid, there was this sense that America was this great place and that all things were possible. And um, you know, maybe I just don't want to give up that vision, though. I you know, I feel like it's been sorely challenged in the past <laughs> past <laughs> couple of years. <laughs> all right. At the end of every episode, we ask our guests uh, the same handful of questions. So I'm going to ask you those now. Uh, we're going to start with what is the last uh, book you read or movie you saw or TV show you watched? Something like that. What's the last pop culture thing you did and what did you think of it? Uh, so I've been watching uh, this show, I'm Sorry, on oh, yeah. True TV, yeah. Andrea Savage's show. And, yeah. and uh, I've, been, I've been getting a real kick out of that. Um, and I feel like a lot of people don't know about it yet because it's on True TV, which is uh, maybe not the first channel people turn to. Mm-hmm. But I, I, um, it's very dark and and it's funny. And uh, though you know a little bit about it, people living in an LA bubble, but yeah. there's a it's a very good version of that. Yeah, yeah. I've I've been watching and really enjoying that as well. Um, who is the writer, living or dead, that you've learned the most from that you've never met? Boy, that's that is a very good question. I have just been reading this uh, biography of Kafka by Reiner Stock, mm. um, and uh, I made me remember how hugely important Kafka was to me when I was a kid, and particularly uh, the Metamorphosis and and the way in which um, you could make he, Kafka's word for it in this biography is indubitable the the fiction has to be indubitable which is yeah. a terrible translation but the idea that that if you describe it with a certain kind of clarity and conviction you can take your readers anywhere um that's something that that left a very deep impression on me right great and finally what's what's your favorite novel ever written and why uh it changes over the years but when i was in college it was anna karenina mm. um and 
I think there there was just you know there's just some something brilliant about having the the affair set aside set against this happy marriage yeah. um that just you know there was a kind of a panorama of the of the human heart in that book I'll stick with that I think that was just reading that book when I read it was just a hugely profound experience and um I was a as I mentioned in my book Joe College I was a fanatical highlighter when I was in college. Yeah. <laughs> and if you look at my college copy of Anna Karenina, I think I basically just underlined the entire book. <laughs> well, thank you very much for dropping by. Uh, Tom Parada's new book, Mrs. Fletcher, is in bookstores. You can read any number of his old ones, Election, uh, Little Children, The Abstinence Teacher, etc., etc. Uh, and also movies, TV adaptations of your work. Thank you for coming by, Tom. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. And in case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. And our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This week's episode was recorded in two locations. I was at the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. And Tom was at the Bristol Entertainment podcast studio in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. If you would please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast platform of choice, be that Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or some random thing I've never heard of, that would be great. It really helps us climb the rankings and it really helps us get great guests. And as I think you can agree, we really do get great guests on this podcast. We will be back next week with another discussion with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, someone who I think is pretty interesting. But until then, remember, if you're living in a comedy, it has to end with a wedding. I I don't make these rules. Somebody else did. That's just the way it is. So you have to get the wedding together. I'm sorry. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to I Think You're Interesting. And I want to take this moment to insert a shameless, well, very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company. It's known for its stand-up technology and its high-fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox. It's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care about most. For a lot of Vox readers, that's politics. For some of you, thank goodness, it's pop culture. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether that's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next. And I also love Eater. I go there all the time to figure out where I'm going to eat next. It's it's a great resource for anybody who's into going out to eat as, as much as I am. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of going deeper and because we believe in the best of our audiences. If you aren't going deep, where are you going?